Tonight we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 12. So let me invite you to turn your Bibles with me so that you can see if what I have to say is from the Scriptures. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Israel was in a difficult situation at this time in history. Nahash, the Ammonite, had threatened them, but God graciously delivered them through King Saul. And now the Philistines are about to become a serious threat, and so Israel knows that they are in danger. But they needed to recognize that there was no king or nation that would pose a greater risk to their safety than God. In other words, God is the worst enemy that anyone could ever have. And the same is true for us. It's one thing to be threatened by great enemies that exist in our day, but the greatest enemy that anyone could ever have is God. So instead of running from Him and doing things our own way, we should turn to Him and submit to Him. Now the period of the judges when they ruled is about to come to an end. Samuel really is the last of the judges. We don't really think of Samuel as one of the judges, but in this text we'll see that he even kind of um, categorizes himself along with them, the other judges. And he, he really is the last judge. He's about to step down and he's about to pass the torch of leading Israel over to King Saul. And so, now Saul will be their theocratic, their God-appointed leader. It's not that Samuel will not have any more responsibility with the people of Israel. He will come up throughout uh, uh, the next several chapters and so on. But, but it is that he's no longer going to be their military leader. That's going to fall on Saul's shoulders. And so with this new phase beginning, the people of Israel needed to know how to live for God. They had not done well in the near, in the near um, past. And Samuel wants to make sure that that they are clear as to their responsibilities going forward with regard to their new God-appointed leader, Saul. And so Saul begins this chapter by putting himself on trial and showing that he's not guilty. And then he puts the people of Israel on trial, showing that they have failed and that God is coming down with judgment on them. There's going to be a specific uh, judgment that comes on them. And then... In the next chapter, chapter 13, Saul's going to be on trial before God and he fails uh, the test. But, but what, what uh, Samuel wants them to know is that God has not given up on them. They still have an opportunity to obey. It's not over, even though they failed in, in asking for a king with the wrong motives and so on. Uh, it's not too late to serve God, but Samuel wants to make it clear that he is still working. So let me read this text for us beginning in verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is the Word of God. Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and His anointed, Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I'll restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from man's hand. 
He said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and His anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in My hand. And they said, He is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which He did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So He sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Beden and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him, and listen to His voice, and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against Him, against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that He may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet you did, you do, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you, will, you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. When confronted with our sin, with our sin, we must respond with repentance. When confronted with our sin, we must respond with repentance. Samuel wants to make it clear to them that it's not too late for them to serve God. And he wants to set out clear ways that they can turn from their wicked ways and and follow God once again. And so the first thing that he does is he wants to show them their sin. So number one, we must know the stench of our own sin. We must know the stench of our own sin. Verses 1-13. to Samuel begins, he wants to make a claim to them about how they have acted. He's going to 
give them a detailed, or I should say, a summary history of how they have acted as Israel and how they specifically, these people that are alive now, are acting against God. But before he does that, he wants to confirm his own integrity in verses 1 through 5. He wants to eventually get to the point where he encourages them to serve God and to fear God. But he starts out by saying, listen, I haven't done anything against you, have I? They were at a place where God has already had Samuel anoint Saul as king, and Saul has been acknowledged as king before all the people. Remember when they, they cast the lots and, and Saul's hiding and God has to, to bring him out to, to show them where he is and so on. So the people know who the king is. And, and while Saul is the king, he doesn't know exactly how to lead. Last time we saw that there's this battle going on and Saul's kind of coming in from the farmland that he was living, on which he was living, his, his father's farmland. And, and then he decides to go out in the battle and he gathers everybody together. He wins the battle. And so Samuel recognizes, okay, the, the torch is being passed. The, the baton is being passed now over to Samuel. And here uh, in this next battle, it will be very clear that Saul is the king. But Samuel wants to know, listen, I am an upright man. His point is not to boast in verses 1 through 5. He's not to say, you know, I have no failures. He wants to set himself in contrast to the people's failures. And so he, he simply wants them to be reminded that, that he has their best interests in view. And that he has a, a, uh, a, he is able to be a good evaluator of them. Because they can look back on his past. Have I ever stolen a donkey from you? Have I ever taken an ox from you? Have I ever defrauded any of you? And do you remember how they respond here when we read it in verse 4? No, you have not. Okay, you are my witnesses. Verse 5, you are my witnesses that I have been faithful to you all these years. And so what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to be faithful still. Okay, I'm not out to advance my own position. I'm, I'm here to tell you the truth. Okay, so you, you look back on my history of how I've worked with you and recognize that I'm on your side. Okay, I want to see you succeed. That's his point. And so the people confirm his integrity. And then Samuel used this, uh, he uses this um, opportunity now to expose their, them to their sin. That is to say, now that you see that I am a truthful person, I'm working on your behalf, what I'm doing is showing your sin, but not in order to rub your face in it, but, but in order to show you how, how offensive it is to God. And so that's what he does in verses 6 through 13. He establishes his integrity, verses 1 through 5, and now he gets to the heart of, the, of his speech here. And it is that the faithfulness of God is in contrast with the sin of the people. And so what he does is he takes a small sampling of history and says, Here, God has been faithful. Your fathers have sinned. God has been faithful. Your fathers have sinned. God has been faithful. You have sinned. And he wants them to see that. that this sin is offensive to God. So first he begins with God's dealing with Israel and history in verses 6-11. through 11. He says, The Lord appointed Moses and Aaron, verse 6. And then verse 8, When Jacob went into Egypt, your fathers cried out to the Lord, right there in distress. They're in trouble. They're oppressed. What does God do? He sends Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them 
in this place. So here he wants to establish right up front, here's a great example of how God delivered you. He was faithful to you. When you called out to Him, that is your fathers, when your fathers called out to God, He came and delivered you. Notice what He tells them to do in verse 7. He says, Samuel says, so now take your stand. So he's about to tell them this history and he's going to use the same language in verse 16. Take your stand. He's basically calling them to account. It's like he's, he's calling them up uh, to, to give their account in the courtroom of God's universe. He, he wants them to, to take ownership of their own sin. So take your stand before God. God wants you to respond rightly and he's going to ask you some he's going to ask something of you. He's not just going to get you to own up to your sin. That's the start. But he's going to move you to a place or he's going to call for you to move to a place where you are repentant and believing in him. So, God's faithfulness verses 6 through 8 and then Israel's sin verses 9 through 11. God had been faithful to them and yet despite God's faithfulness they continued in their pattern of the same kind of pattern that we see in the time of the judges, right? It's sin. God lets them be oppressed by the nations and then they cry out for help and God delivers. And that pattern seems to be... just You can just plug that pattern almost anywhere in Israel's history and it's there, right? They, they turn away from God. God allows them to be oppressed. They see their oppression and call out to God for help and then God delivers. And that's what Samuel is reminding them of. This is just a pattern that's been part of Israel's history. Verse 9, but they forgot the Lord their God, so He sold them into the hand of Sisera. Do you hear the, the oppression there? Their sin and then the oppression. And then, verse 10, they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned. And then notice, verse 11, the Lord sent these four men, uh, these four judges here. The Lord sent Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, and Bedan, that is Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, notice how he lists himself among the judges. This is where I, what I was talking about earlier. Samuel is the last of the judges. Now before the, the spirit who was anointing these judges is now going to anoint the king. He's already done that. And so Samuel thinks, I'm the last one, passing it on to Saul now. Samuel saying, listen, this is the way that you have worked with God in the past. You've called out directly to God and He's come and delivered you. But, but things are going to change now. Because now you've called and asked for, demanded a king. And so now you're not going to go to God for help. You're going to go to your king for help. And what He wants them to see is, yes, they messed up in how they asked for a king and when they asked for a king and why they asked for a king. But, but God wasn't done with them. There was still a right way that they could actually go to God for help through the king. God had, dealed with, had dealt with Israel in the past by being faithful to them. They had failed Him. They had been unfaithful to God. And now He turns, Samuel does in verses 12-13, through 13, of how God has dealt with Israel in the present. He says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. So they're starting to feel this oppression again. And notice the pattern that's kind of broken here now. Sin, oppression, cry for help, deliverance. Here it is. Now the pattern changes. It's sin, oppression, 
demand a king. And God's saying, see, things have changed now. You, you want to be like the pagan nations who have a king. When they demanded the king in chapter 8, that is Israel, Samuel was distraught, and yet God said, listen, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're just tired of me being the one that has to deliver them. And so they think if they have a, just a human king, that somehow he's going to be the answer to their problems. And maybe they can stop the cycle. And God's saying, that's not the problem. The problem is not that you don't have a, pay, a human king like the pagan nations. The problem is that you keep getting back to that first step in the cycle, right? It's the sin that gets you back into that situation. And so he, sa- he says, God says to Samuel, listen, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected my leadership over them. Chapter 12, verse 7. So they were oppressed through Nahash, and instead of crying out to God for help, instead they cry out to Samuel for them to have a king. You see, God saw right through what they were doing. We might not, if we're just reading through the story, we might not see it, but thankfully God tells us exactly what's going on in their minds. And He knew that they knew that God was no longer their king. They would now be led by a human king. And Samuel's speech was to show them that God was to still be their king. Okay, now the the organization changes a little bit, but there's still hope for you in that you have final and full deliverance through God your King, capital K. And that comes when you obey. And that's what we'll see in verses 14 and following. That, that Samuel is going to call them to obedience. And when he calls them to obedience, he also calls the king to obey. And so what do we do when the water of our sin has passed under the bridge of life? Because that's where Israel is, right? They, they've had these great sins they've done. And most specifically or recently, they have committed this sin where they've asked for a king out of, out of place. They shouldn't have done it. Nothing inherently wrong with the king. But they shouldn't have asked for a king in the way that they did and for the purpose that they did. So, so now that that's done, well, can they undo that? And that's, what I, 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 that's how I would apply it to us. What do we do when the water of our sin has passed under the bridge of our life? Right? Do we try to go back and, and regather it? Maybe try to get that situation to, to pass under the bridge of life a second time? Or do we recognize that we made a mistake? We, we, we failed God. We rebelled against God in that situation. We can't change what we've already done, but certainly we can learn from it. We can acknowledge it. We can recognize that life will be different in the future, right? That it's not going to be the same as it was before. It's often one of the the great struggles of sinning is that that we receive the consequences of our sin. We want things to go back to how they once were, where we kind of had a clean slate before, but that's not how sin works. That's not how the consequences of sin works. Instead, we need to recognize it's, it's past, it's over, we failed. Life's going to be different, but at the same time, there's still an opportunity for us to return to God, isn't there? That God will still accept us when we confess our sin to Him. 
And He will continue to lead us through our King. Through Him being our King. For Israel, they needed to recognize that while God didn't approve of their motives in chapter 8 of asking for a king, He certainly didn't abandon them either. Because they selected a king, but God also was in it in their choosing of a king. So, number one, we must know the stench of our own sin. Samuel tries to point that out to them, and he just carefully uses history to do that. Number two, we must forget what is behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. We must forget what is behind and reach forward to what lies ahead, verses 14 through 18. So, if the water of our sin is passed under the bridge of life, what do we do? If, if the past is unrepeatable, unreplayable, we can't go back and uh, do over, if that's the case, what do we do now? And so Samuel wants them to know that what, what it is that will happen to, to them if they obey God and what will happen if they disobey. So, here, you failed... It's been clear you followed after your fathers and your failings. But here, here's what can happen in the future. If you obey God, this is what will happen. If you disobey God, this is what, was, what will happen. So here's your opportunity to respond. And he begins by saying that submission to God will result in success despite their past failure. Look at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and listen to His voice, and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. So notice, he is talking to the congregation of Israel as a whole, and he's saying submission to God by you as a people will result in what? So, let's just summarize the first part. If you will fear and serve and listen and not rebel. Okay, so those are all the things, the expectations that God has. We'll just call all that submission. If you do this, then, you see that if-then statement? It starts with if, middle of the verse, then. So if you do this, what's God going to do? Notice what happens. You and also your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. Isn't this amazing? Don't, don't we expect for the if statement to include the part about the king following God? So if you fear, if you obey, if you... Do not rebel. And if your king does as well, then you will follow the Lord your God. But that's not what the text says. It says if you, congregation, you do all of this, then you and your leader will follow God. In other words, as the faithfulness of the people goes, so goes their king. So goes their leader. Now, this is a general principle, but I think this is a principle that you can see in nearly every place that has an authority structure. That is, as the people go, so goes their leader. Have you seen that in our country? That, that we, as a country, tend to choose the type of leader that best reflects who we are as citizens of the country? Isn't that the case in the church? That the congregation tends to select the type of leaders that reflect who they are? Right? If you have a congregation that's made up of faithful believers who love the Word of God, then what kind of guy will they choose to be their pastor? Well, they'll choose a guy that loves the Word of God also and that can preach. 
But if you have a congregation made up of people with false conversions, and people who love to get their, have their ears tickled, then what kind of pastor do you think they're going to choose? Are they not going to choose a false teacher, one that will just make them feel good as they walk out the door? And I think this principle for Israel is a principle for us. That we as a congregation have a responsibility to uphold the sound doctrine and to live godly lives. And when we do, we help to shape and influence the type of leader that will be over us. Here's what he's saying to Israel. Israel, if you will submit to me, if you will get yourself in line with me, then you and your king will follow me. As a congregation, you have a very strong influence influence on your leadership. On who leads you, how they lead you. And just as an example, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says to submit to your leaders for they watch over your souls and let them do this with joy and not with grief because that would not be, a, that would not be profitable for you if they were doing their job with grief. So, what does that imply? Right? Hebrews thirteen seventeen. It implies that you can make the job of the pastor very hard and make him want to think of other ways to get his job done. Okay, so if I'm preaching this way, if I'm trying to lead this way, and the people are grumbling so much, then maybe it would be easier if I just gave in to their wishes. Maybe I shouldn't speak the truth as much. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, let them do it with joy. Let them lead you with joy and not with grief. See, do you, so do you see in Hebrews 13, 17, there is an implied, there, there is an implication there for for you as a congregation, that you very much have influence on the way that your leaders rule over you and the way that I lead you. So let's think about this. Israel has sinned in asking for a king in the way that they did. And yet, and, and yet Samuel saying that if you turn back to God, then God will again be your ultimate king. But here's the converse. Okay, so if you obey, there's great success that's waiting for you. But if you disobey, verse 15, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father. So rebellion to God will result in judgment from God. And now in verses 16 through 18, God, through Samuel, wants to make this stick in their minds. And so He gives a a picture of what's what he thinks about their sin. In verses 16 through 18, he wakes them up to the seriousness of their sin. He's about to make clear to them what they have done. Verse 16, Even now take your stand and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. So God's about to do something. Stand up, take ownership for your sin because God's about to make it clear how much He hates it. Because something very unusual is about to happen in verses 17 and 18. And Samuel wants them to know that this is not an accident, but rather what is about to happen agriculturally, or we could say meteorologically. This was not an accident. This is a clear message from God that their sin was serious before Him. Notice verse 17. Is it not the wheat harvest today? 
Okay. Implied answer is yes, it is the wheat harvest today. So I will call to the Lord, Samuel says, that He may send thunder and rain. And then you will know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So yes, your sin is past, but, but your sin still has consequences and I want you to know how serious what you have done is. Harvest season in Israel would have been in May, end of May, early June. It was the beginning of the dry season. And during that time, a huge thunderstorm would have been near impossible. Very unprobable. Improbable. How about that? Extremely rare. It would be like getting a 100 degree day at the end of November in Michigan. That's how rare it is. And so what Samuel says is, listen, take your stand. Stand up and, and take ownership for your sin because what you're about to see happen here on Harvest Day is this great thunderstorm. Rain? You kidding me? Rain? Beginning of dry season? That just doesn't happen. Not like that. That's exactly the point. God wants them to know that this is serious and this is from Him. And so He sends the thunder and rain in verse 18. And the point of it at the end of verse 17 is so that they know that they were wrong in asking for a king in the way that they did. And this is often how God helps us to see the stench of our own sin. Dale Davis puts it this way in his commentary. He says, Sometimes we don't discover the severity of our problem until we smell the odor of decay. Like when a dead animal starts to stink or there's moldy food in the fridge. That's when we really start to sense the seriousness of our problem. And so what God was doing here is He's getting Israel to smell the stench of their idolatry. It wasn't about, in asking for a king, it wasn't about serving God better. You know, I want a, I want a king, a human king, so that God can, I can be drawn closer to you better than I have before. That wasn't what, what it was about. So that they could be like the nations. It was all about their worldly success. And so the thunderstorm comes in verse 18 and the people realize that it was from God. They realize the weight of their sin. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. They realized the weight of their sin and responded with reverent fear. So number one, we must know the stench of our sin, verses 1 to 13. Number two, we must forget what is behind and reach forward to what lies ahead, verses 14 to 18. And then finally, verses 19 to 25, we must remember God's faithfulness and promise. We must remember God's faithfulness and promise. If we are going to repent, if we are really going to repent, if our repentance is going to be genuine, then we need to do more than simply acknowledge our sin. We must also remember God's faithfulness and promise. And so in verse 19, the people plead for mercy via Samuel. In verse 19, Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Do you see what they're doing here? They're acknowledging their sin, aren't they? Saying, what you said is, is true, Samuel. What God has said about our sin is true. We have done wrong in, in asking for ourselves a king. But it, but it requires more than that if it's going to be genuine repentance. So Samuel agrees to pray for them, but then he finishes 
in verses 24 and 25 by saying that you, you still need to trust God. You still need to make Him your king. So Samuel agrees to pray for them in verses 20 to 23. He says, listen, it's not too late to serve the Lord. Verse 20, Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. The task was not to reverse what they had done. Right? We can't replay the sins that we have done. We can't have a do-over the sins we've already committed. So it's not, that's not our job is to try to reverse what we've already done, but rather to act faithfully moving forward. I hope you understand that in some cases, or I should say in many cases, if not all, that when we move forward, it also means giving restoration to what we've done. It doesn't mean we replay it as if it didn't exist, but, but you know, like if you steal from someone, then you need to, to recover that or, or give retribution for that those stolen items, right? That's why when Matthew came to Jesus, he said, I'm going to restore those who, whom I've defrauded, Zacchaeus. I'm going to restore them fourfold. And so that doesn't mean that, that we don't, that we don't uh, pay for our sins or, or we, we go back and try to make restitution with the people that we've wronged. But what it does mean is that we can't start over. We can't go back and, and just go through life as if that didn't happen. It did happen. And now it's time to serve the Lord. The only thing worse than failing to acknowledge God is to turn away from Him after we've been exposed to the truth. So, so have you sinned? That sin's been exposed to you. Well, here's, here's your opportunity to turn back to God. You, you can't go back and change it. But you know what would be worse than actually committing that grievous sin would be after you're exposed to that sin, after you recognize the weight of that sin, that you didn't do anything about it. You just went right on with life as if you don't have to, to worry about that. And Samuel wants them to know, listen, respond to God now. Okay, don't turn back to idols. Verse 21 that's the idea of this worthless things. Do not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they're futile. So two times futile, weak, worthless, vain. Following after false gods is, is the equivalent of futility. It's, it's the equivalent of doing nothing. It's following nothing because they are nothing. In terms of God, the God of the universe, they are nothing. And so he says, don't turn back to the idols. God is faithful. Verse 22 for the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. Here's where God's faithfulness comes in. God's saying, listen, my name's at stake here. My reputation is on the line. And if I fail to come to you and rescue you when you genuinely repent, it says something about me, doesn't it? It says something that, that either I don't care about you, that I'm not willing to follow back on my promise, or that I simply am incompetent. I can't do it. And God's saying, see, my name's at stake here. And I'm not going to allow my name to be defamed. I am faithful, and so you can count on that. I will be faithful to you. But you still have a responsibility. You need to repent. In verse 23, Samuel says, listen, I, I'm going to pray for you. I, I would be sinning if I didn't pray for you, so I'm going to pray for you. 
I'm going to keep, work on, keep working on your behalf. But let me conclude here, Samuel says, with this final exhortation. Okay, we need to... If, if this repentance is going to be genuine, we need to begin by acknowledging our sin. But we also need to trust in God's, God's character and His promises. And here is, here is the exhortation that Samuel gives in verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. So again, we have this, this contrast between if you obey and if you disobey. Here, here's the expectation that God has for you. Obey Him. Submit to Him. Only fear Him. Revere Him over the nations who are, who are troubling you. Fear God and serve Him with all of your heart. Why would we do such a thing, God? Why would we only fear and serve You when there's all these nations around us that could wipe us out? God says, look at the things that I've done. Look at the end of verse 24 again. For consider what great things He has done for you. Did you not learn anything from history? The history of your own people? How when, when they cried for help, I was there to deliver them. And so, recognize that on the basis of my character and my promise that I'm going to do it again. So your responsibility is to fear the Lord and serve Him all of your days. And then the converse of that is, is, is rebellion. In verse 25, but if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. But God is serious about our obedience. God is serious about us responding to Him in genuine repentance and faith. How often are we like Israel? We have a crisis that comes and we are confident that God cannot provide. And so we turn to our own measures. We look for our own solutions that that we think will work. And we do it all without without even consulting with God. We don't pray to God. We don't use the means that God has provided this Word and and these people that He's put in our lives. We neglect God. And what we need from God is for Him to wake us up to the seriousness of our sin. We need need Him to wake us up to our self-sufficiency, our idolatry. That is, we are setting ourselves or our goals and Uh, and expectations above His. Like, I think I know how to make this situation happen, and I'm going to pursue it without you, God. And what we need God to do is what He did to Israel. Look at your sin, and, and, and recognize the stench of your sin, and then repent of it. Christian, your past sin has not exempted you from future grace. You have sinned, but God God lovingly shows you your sin and then He offers you a pathway toward healing and change and toward pleasing Him. You have that possibility, that ability to be able to please God following your sin no matter how heinous it was. God shows you your sin lovingly and says, listen, I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm just waiting for you to draw near to Me. And when you do, I will draw near to you. 
Do you see what God is telling the people of Israel? Yes, you have sinned in asking for a king, but stop dwelling on your past sin in a way that will prevent you from moving forward in faithfulness. Should we learn from our past sin like Israel? Yes, of course. But we must look forward to future obedience. We must think about what we need to do in order to obey God. So, all right, so now that I've done this, it's already passed, I can't change it. What can I learn from that in order to advance myself spiritually so that kind of catastrophic failure doesn't happen again? What kind of things did I avoid along the way? What kind of helps did I avoid along the way because I wanted to do it my own way? What kind of signs post was God putting up in order to say, hey, danger, keep out, do not enter. And I just kept barreling right on through. And I ended up on the bottom side of this cliff looking up going, how did I get here? What can I learn from it? So, so yes, we learn from it, but we, we think forward. Okay, we're, we're back up on, on solid ground. We're back on the pathway towards righteousness. I can't forget what, what I've done, but, but I also need to recognize that I can't keep dwelling on it to the point where it, it, it holds me back. I recognize that God forgives and He remembers my sin no more when He, when he forgives me. That as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our sin from us. God's not sitting up there just kind of mulling it over again and again. Man, I... I'd really like to see this person advance a little bit farther, but you know, this one thing. Stop dwelling on your past sin and start moving forward. What can I do to obey God? But it doesn't end there. Our, our focus ought to be on God's past faithfulness and on His promise that He is faithful to Himself and to His promises so that even in our sin, God's grace can abound. Can it not? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 5. God is, is on your side. Are you confident of that, believer? God is on your side. That nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He is merciful and ready to forgive. So fall on Him for grace. Don't ignore His plea and demand that, that you have a different situation like Israel's calling for, Right? Our sin is behind us. It's time to turn back to following God. So what specific sin is God speaking to you about? Maybe there's something that's just hanging out there and you just haven't dealt with it with God. Is this big elephant in the room when you go to talk to God, when you go to serve God, and you just haven't handled it with Him? You know God is ready to forgive. He promises to forgive if you you are willing to confess it and forsake it. So what specific sin is it for you? God is on your side. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? Pursue Him with all that you have and you won't regret it. Only fear the Lord and serve Him with all of your heart. For consider what great things that He has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered by the truth of the text that we've looked at today. We, we love to look at texts that talk about Your grace and, and how it, it's overwhelming. And, and Lord, we can't miss that even in this text. But, but there is uh, seemingly an overall 
um, focus in this text on the sin of the people, how they needed to learn from it, turn from it, be exposed to it, uh, recognize what it meant to you, and then move on to greater faithfulness. And Lord, we, we recognize that there are times in our life when we get caught up in the web of, of sin and we don't know how to get out. It's so complicated. The consequences are so extensive. And yet we know that You, God, are ready to forgive. And that doesn't mean that all the consequences will be removed on this side of eternity, but, but it does mean that, that we can have a right standing with You that we can be restored to You like Peter was restored following his denial of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to accept that kind of restoration from You. And, Lord, we praise You that You are slow to anger, that You're ready to forgive, and that You do not count our sins against us. Because if You counted our sins against us, O Lord, who could stand? All of our sins have been paid for through Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we can be confident that, that past sins and, and present and future sins are all covered under His blood. And Lord, that doesn't give us a license to do whatever we want or to just act um, rebelliously. But, but it does help us to have that great confidence that You are on our side and, and that Jesus is enough. Lord, He is all that we need. We don't have any other argument or plea, but but all we can say is that all the sins that we have committed are true and are held to our account, but but we also can say that that Jesus is our righteousness and that's all we need, that that you accept us on the basis of what he has done. And so we pray that you would help us to be good repenters people who, when exposed to our sin, either through the preaching of Your Word or through the reading of Your Word or when people come to us and say, hey, that's not how Christians live, that we respond with grace and we respond with repentance, that we forsake our sins and turn towards obedience. Lord, keep us on the path of righteousness for Your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.